Would you please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. We're going to begin at verse 31. John chapter 19, starting at verse 31. Let me just set the stage for you where we left off at verse 30 of John chapter 19. We followed the crucifixion of Jesus. How they brought him to a place called Golgotha, or we could call it Calvary, because that's the name in Latin. They brought him to this place. They stripped him naked. They put him on the cross. They drove spikes through his wrists or his hands and his feet. They put him up on the cross until he agonized through those hours and until, as the record of John says, he cried out. Knowing that all things were accomplished, Jesus said, it is finished. To tell us die, paid in full, that it was done, that it was complete, that the work that he had came to do to be a sacrifice, a sinless substitute, that he would lay down his life so that we could have his life, that that was accomplished on the cross. And then the Bible says that he bowed his head and the pictures of laying your head down on a pillow and he yielded his spirit unto his God and Father. So when we left the Gospel of John chapter 19, the body of Jesus extinguished of its physical life, was there on the cross. And that's where we begin now at verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other, who was crucified with him. There they were, three bodies on crosses on Calvary. And as the day started getting towards the end of the day, the religious leaders didn't want the bodies to remain up there because not only was Sabbath coming, but it was a particularly holy Sabbath being associated with Passover. And because it was such a gruesome spectacle to have those bodies that were either dead or nearly dead hanging upon the cross... By the way, if I could say the Romans didn't care. The Romans didn't care if the bodies remained up there for days. The Romans didn't care if birds and wild animals came and started eating from the bodies. I hate to sound gross, but that's just the truth. But the religious leaders pricked in their conscience. They said, we got to do something about this. We're going to ask Pilate if it's okay to take the bodies down from the cross. Now, what the Romans were most concerned about was that the people be actually dead. They weren't going to take a live body down from the cross. And so the Roman soldiers, having done this before, they they had a special name for this. They would come with a heavy wooden club or with an iron bar. They walked up to the first thief who was there on the cross, and that first thief was still alive. And with terror, that first thief looks down at the Roman soldier with the heavy club, and he knows what's coming. He knows that a man's going to take a swing of a club, something like a baseball bat, and break his legs, and he's going to die. Now, the reason why the breaking of the legs hastened the death of a crucified man was because in order to kind of get a proper breath, to draw a proper breath, you kind of had to boost yourself up from your feet. And even though it was painful because your feet were nailed into the cross, you boosted yourself up the best you could, but you could breathe a little bit, kind of. You break the legs, you have no more support there, you can't breathe, you drown, you suffocate, and the gas, and you just die very quickly. 
With horror, that thief comes, looks down upon a Roman soldier, heartless. The Roman soldier didn't care. He'd done this dozens of times before. He draws back, he breaks the leg, you can hear the bones snap, and instantly you can hear the thief start gasping for breath, and the Roman soldier, in a couple minutes, he's dead. He comes to the middle cross, and for reasons we'll discuss in a minute, he passes by it. And he goes over to the second thief, looks him in the eye, swings the club, hears the bones break, and hears the man immediately gasping for breath, and his life would soon be extinguished. You know, one of those thieves was destined for an eternity apart from God forever. One of those thieves would be in paradise with Jesus that very day. Don't you think it's a terrible spectacle to look down from a cross and see a man swing a club and feel your clubs break? What a horrible thing. May I just remind you that the thief that was destined for an eternity apart from God, that was better than what he was just going to. For the other thief that was destined for paradise, it was horrible, but it was the last pain he would ever feel. And it was almost as if Jesus was making a little picture there. My followers may have to suffer affliction before they go from this life to the next. But when they go to paradise, there will be no more affliction. But then we come to the man in the middle, do we not? It says there, verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and then of the other. They broke the legs. Then they looked at the one in the middle, verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. They come to the first thief, break his legs. They came to the man in the middle and the soldier looked up and goes, he's already dead. Now it was a bit of a surprise. Relatively speaking, Jesus died quickly on the cross. Usually people lingered for longer. But ladies and gentlemen, Jesus, and I hope you understand me when I say this. Jesus was not a masochist. He was there, oh, I want to endure pain, pain, pain. No, Jesus, once it was finished, once he had paid the price, he said, I'm done. I'm gone, I'm out of here. So relatively speaking, Jesus died a quick death on the cross. And I say quick, it was probably at least three hours. But he died his death on the cross and the soldier could see it. He goes, I don't need to break his legs. He's dead. But just to make sure that he's dead, notice what it says there in verse 34. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Now we know what these spears were like because we have archaeological remains and such. The tip of that spear, you know, it was kind of in a, in a point, but at its broadest point, it was about as thick as a hand. It was a hand breadth across. And we know that because later when Thomas puts his hand in the wound of Jesus, he put his hand all the way in. It was that wide. The soldier didn't just poke Jesus. He inserted that spear all the way in. And you know what? You put a spear like that in a man and he doesn't move, he's dead. He doesn't react, he's dead. And then, most notably, 
If something notable comes out of the wound, you know that he's dead. But what I want you to notice first is that this specifically fulfilled prophecy, which we'll speak about in a moment, but verse 34 says, immediately blood and water came out. Ladies and gentlemen, this was an absolute confirmation of the fact that Jesus was dead. The gash in his side flowed out with a substance that was like water and like blood. The Roman soldier saw it. John saw it. He goes, he's dead. There's no doubt about it. I know it's always dangerous when a preacher speaks outside of his area of expertise. But from what I read about the medical side of this, that this is somewhat of an impromptu autopsy of Jesus. That surrounding the heart is a sack that they call it the pericardium or something like that. And in that sack is sort of a watery substance. And if someone's heart ruptures, if that's the cause of death, then that watery sack fills with blood from the heart. And if that were pierced, out would flow something that looked like water and something that would look like blood. There are people who believe in this. I I know it can't be proven, but they believe from this. That the physical cause of death, of of the death of Jesus Christ was a a ruptured heart. He died of a broken heart. You could say it was broken over the sin and the weakness and the pain of humanity. But something happened there and the water and the blood flowed out. And John said, and the Roman soldier said, he's dead. There's no doubt about it. Now, can I just draw an image for you before we go on to the next verse? Go back in your mind to the Garden of Eden in Genesis. In the Garden of Eden, God opened up the side of Adam and out of that brought forth the mother of all humanity, Eve. On the cross, the man that is sometimes known as the second Adam, because they were the only two sinless people ever to live, Adam's sinlessness was temporary. The second Adam had his side opened and out of it comes the blood and the water that brings forth a new people of God. You see a similarity of God's work in both places. But now going on to the next verse, see what John says in analysis of this. Verse 35, and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Notice this in verse 35. John says, I saw it with my own eyes. He who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. John gave us a solemn assurance that he saw it with his own eyes and he tells us so that we may believe. Ladies and gentlemen, the manner and the certainty of the death of Jesus is an essential part of our Christian belief. We know that he really went to the cross. We know that he really died and we believe it. And John says, I saw it with my own eyes. It leads us to believe. And one of the reasons why we believe is that it was all done according to the scriptures so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And two prophecies were fulfilled right here that John mentions very quickly. The prophecy of Psalm 34, 20 that tells us that not a bone of his should be broken. 
Isn't it remarkable? The man with the club comes and he doesn't break the legs of Jesus. Why? We could say, well, he's a Roman soldier and he saw that Jesus was already dead. No, why? Because the scriptures say not a bone of his will be broken. And then you could say that according to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, they said they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Why was the side pierced? Well, the soldier wanted to prove that he was dead. No, his side was pierced. His side was pierced because the scripture had to be fulfilled. And Zechariah, it says, of the Jewish people, that they shall look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Yes, his bones could not be broken. His side had to be pierced. And then we come to verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. You see what we have there starting at verse 38? First, we have a secret disciple, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, he was a true disciple, but a secret disciple. But now is his moment. He looks at those three men on three crosses, and he knows what's going to happen to the two thieves. Their bodies are going to be ripped down from the cross, and their bodies are going to be thrown into a garbage dump. And Joseph of Arimathea says, that's not happening to my Savior, to my Messiah on my watch. No way. Apparently, Jesus isn't the Messiah. Look at what happened to him. But he was still a great man, and I still love him. So that's not happening while I'm still around. He goes and he takes the very bold move to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. It was a bold move. You're associating yourself with a man who just got crucified. But Joseph Arimathea doesn't care. He goes, my days of being a secret disciple are over. I'm going to go to Pilate and declare that I'm a follower of Jesus. May I have the body, please? Pilate, the other gospel sellers, confirmed that Jesus was actually dead. And then he said, okay, you can have the body. So Pilate came. And the scriptures give us, not exactly, but it gives us certainly the intimation that, that, uh, that Joseph and Nicodemus, the other man who came with him, did this work themselves. Joseph of was a rich man a righteous man, an influential man. Nicodemus, again, was an influential man, a member of the Sanhedrin. These two men of high standing, they come to take the body of Jesus down from the cross. Can you just think of how they had to do it? There's nails. They're not just going to rip the body down. They got to get some kind of ladder. They got to get some kind of tool and as gently as they can remove the nails from each wrist or hand. The body would slump down over the shoulder of one of those men. And can you imagine the blood everywhere? Can you imagine 
their bodies were splattered with the blood of Jesus. There was blood and dirt and sweat everywhere. But they took that body, carried it over his shoulder, and fortunately the tomb was nearby the place of the cross. And they came to some kind of table, some kind of platform. They came and they laid the body down. And notice what the text says. It tells us what they did. It says that they took the body of Jesus, that body of Jesus, they took it down from the cross, verse 40 tells us, and then verse 40 goes on to say that they bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. So the the, the Jews didn't mummify bodies like the Egyptians did, but what they would do is they would take these thick, sticky spice kind of things and they would, they would kind of slather the strips on both sides and they would wrap it around the body. It would kind of slow down the process of decay, but it wasn't just that. It would keep the terrible smell of a rotting body from coming through and the spices could maybe overwhelm some of that smell. And they were in a hurry. They did the best they could. They just started wrapping and doing that. But I don't want you to miss something. Before they could wrap the body, what does it say there in verse 40? It says, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. And both back then and even to the present day, the Jewish people had specific customs that you follow when you prepare a body for burial. And one of the things that you have to do, if you're going to bury a body according to the Jewish custom, is you have to wash it. You have to remove all the foreign matter. You have to clean it and prepare it. Ladies and gentlemen, they laid the body of Jesus down. And if they started at the head, there's a crown of thorns upon that head. They have to remove that crown of thorns. And then they see all over the head and the brow, there are broken thorns embedded into the skull of Jesus and according to the burial customs of the Jews they have to take each one out and remove it and wash away the blood wash away the matted dirt and filth that's in the hair they have to wash the beard that was plucked they have to wash every bloody wound they look at every bruise they examine his shoulders that are filled with splinters listen the the cross wasn't a sanded piece of wood They go to this huge gash that's on his side and they wash it out the best they could. They go to his hands that are are just mangled. They wash the whole body. I, I would tell you that the body of Jesus of Nazareth was not washed with such love and care since he was a baby. Can you imagine how emotionally wrenching it was for Joseph and Nicodemus. You imagine the tears that they must have shed? They look at that hand and they say, that hand touched the uh, the eyes of a blind man and healed him. And now it's lifeless. They look, they look at the mouth and they say, I saw that mouth and I heard words from that mouth that I never heard from any other person They look at the eyes that are now closed and I wonder if they whispered to Jesus, Jesus, wake up. 
Jesus, come back. Jesus. They had to turn the body over and do the whole thing on the other side. They had to lovingly prepare that body for burial. This astounds me, friends. As the two men did this, these men who were experts in the law of the Jews, they must have known that they were fulfilling prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, it says that the Messiah would be with the rich at his death. It says, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Joseph looks at Nicodemus. Nicodemus looks at Joseph. They're men of means. They have a little bit of money in this world. And they go, here it is. It's fulfilled right now. The scriptures are true. We're preparing his body for burial and it's us who are doing it. I think it was a strange work for those two men to do. But I think it's even more strange that Jesus submitted to it. Look, I know that the physical life of Jesus was extinguished at this point. But he knew it would happen. He knew the plan of his God and Father. He submitted to it ahead of time. Some of us know what it's like. I I haven't reached that place yet in my life, but I know many people who have. Where you have to care for an elderly parent. And you have to, you know, you, you have to care for them as if they're a child. Because of their condition or their age. And there's something heartbreaking in that, isn't there? And you think, no parent would ever choose that if they could. They'd never choose it. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a sense in which Jesus chose that kind of humiliation. I mean, theoretically, it didn't have to be that way. Listen, Jesus had to rise from the dead, did he not? He had to die on the cross. He had to rise from the dead. There's no two ways about that. That's going to happen. But you know what? You could say, theoretically, he didn't have to be buried. How about this? He dies on the cross. It is finished. He yields his spirit to his father. He bails down his head. He he extinguishes his own life. He yields it to the father. And he's there on the cross for 20 minutes. And then he resurrects straight from the cross like a superhero. In a flash of light and radiation and color. The wounds heal. The nails pop out. He comes down from the cross and he says, now let's see who's in charge. Man, that would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? But he didn't do that. He submitted to be buried. And friends, this is important. You know how important it is? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul describes the gospel, he says, here's the gospel I delivered to you, that Jesus died according to the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. Why would he mention that he was buried if that's not important? It's so important that in one of the classic Christian creeds, the creed known as the Apostles' Creed, here's how the beginning of it goes. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the, of the, by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Whatever it was about Jesus submitting to this humble burial, there's something important in this. 
Well, first of all, I would say that it fulfilled Scripture. We saw it earlier, Isaiah chapter 3, 53, I should say, verse 9. It says, and they made his grave with the wicked. He was going to be buried. It was prophesied so in the Old Testament. It also fulfilled Jesus' own prophecies. Jesus said that just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man would be in the earth three days and three nights. Jesus prophesied it. So it had to happen because it was prophesied in the Old Testament, and Jesus himself prophesied it. But friends, it also demonstrated that Jesus was truly dead. Did you know that there's some people who question the truth of the resurrection? Maybe somebody here, maybe you. Maybe honestly, you go, ah, that resurrection thing, that's a little bit too hard. That's a guy rising from the dead? Listen, one of the most common ways that people try to deny the resurrection is they say this, Jesus wasn't really dead on the cross. And they took down his body from the cross still alive And they put him in the tomb and he just kind of revived in the tomb. Because we know that always happens with a guy who's crucified. He revives in the tomb. But anyway, doesn't the burial in this way show us he was dead? Could you imagine trying to tell Joseph of Arimathea, hey, Jesus didn't really die on the cross, did he? He'd punch you in the face. Are you kidding? I buried him. If there was any life left in that man, I would have known it. I wanted with all my being for him still to be alive, but he was dead. Don't you try to tell me he wasn't dead. Oh no, my friends, he was most certainly dead. But there's something else about this. I notice that the burial gave both Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus a way to come out of their state as being secret disciples. They live their life as secret disciples. No more. Now they proclaim their allegiance to Jesus Christ publicly. And friends, I don't know. It wouldn't be surprising if there's some among us here this morning. Frankly, you're a secret disciple, at least in some part of your life. At school, secret disciple. At work, secret disciple. That's just you. Man, you'd be terrified if anybody from a particular sphere knew that you were really a believer. But let me say this. It's better to be a secret disciple than no disciple at all. I'll give you that. But God does not want your secrecy to be a permanent condition. He wants to bring you out of your secrecy. He did so for Nicodemus and Joseph of Marathea, and I think he wants to do so for you as well. But I'll say this again. There's another thing that we can draw from this. The burial was another way that Jesus demonstrated his identification with the lowness of humanity. If you think about it, that when Jesus added humanity to his deity and came down from heaven, that was a step down, don't you think? When he died on the cross, it was another step down. When he agreed to be buried, it was the last step down in humility. From here on out, I don't want to give a spoiler to anybody, but he's going to rise from the dead. This is the bottom. From here on out, starting next time, it's all glory. This is the bottom. This is the lowest rung on the descent from heaven. It doesn't get any lower than this. But as much as anything, Jesus did this to identify with humanity in all of its brokenness and in all of its weakness. 
Why did he come as a man and not a superman? Because he wanted to come and say, I am one of you. You can identify with me and I can identify with you. Ladies and gentlemen, unless Jesus comes for us first, which I'm all into, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But if he does not come for us first, every one of us will die. And in some way or another, our body will be buried. Jesus said, I love you so much that I am going to identify with you even in that lowness and weakness. I became one of you so that you could receive my righteousness and my power and my salvation that I have to give you. Do you not see that there is something absolutely wonderful in the way that Jesus surrendered and submitted to this process of burial? So we leave it here. Let's read verse 41. They put him in the garden tomb in which no one had been laid. Now Matthew chapter 27 tells us that this tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. John doesn't specifically tell us that, but Matthew does. A rich man like Joseph would purchase a tomb in a nice garden carved out of rock. It would be covered by a door that was covered with a, a, excuse me, the, the, the door would be covered with a circular stone that would be rolled over it. They would go take the, the, the wrapped up body of Jesus, lay it inside of the tomb, walk out of the tomb. Roman soldiers were there because the religious leaders knew that it, Jesus said that he would rise again. They didn't want anybody stealing his body. So there were Roman soldiers outside guarding the tomb as the stone rolled over the entrance, was set in place. They put a Roman seal across the stone so that nobody would mess around with it. They walked away from the garden and they left. Have you ever thought the human race was ruined in a garden? Were we not? Adam was responsible for that. And every one of us ever since then, we're all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. That's just us. The human race was ruined in a garden. But when man failed in the first garden, God did not say, okay, I'll give you a second chance. Isn't that how we usually feel as people? That's how I am. What I really need is I need a second chance. God looked at me and he looked at all of us and he said, you don't need a second chance. You'd blow it with your second chance as well. You'd blow it with your 2,000th chance. No, God said, you don't need a second chance. That's not going to help you. I'm going to give you a second Adam. And so God sent another sinless man in the fullness of time to live the life and to fulfill what we needed and then to die on a cross as our substitute, and to be buried and in the tomb. Where the first Adam failed in a garden, the second Adam comes to the Garden of Gethsemane. In the first garden, Adam said, my will be done, my way, God. In the second garden, the second Adam says, not my will, but your will, O God. And he went to the cross, and now he's put in this tomb, in this garden. What's going to happen? 
Come back next time as we continue in John chapter 20. Well, you know what happens. You know this. You know that as the Redeemer's body lay in the lifeless tomb in that garden, the story is not over. And that's what God says to everybody who's experienced the pain of a burial, the death, everything. In Jesus, the story is not over. In Jesus, life is going to come. Resurrection is there. Hope is not extinguished. In Jesus, the story in that garden is not finished. And we'll get to it next time. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the power of the story of Jesus of Nazareth, who he is and what he did for us. And in our mind's eye, as we see Joseph and Nicodemus care for that lifeless body of Jesus, we entrust to you our life and our body. You surrendered everything for us, Jesus. Now we surrender unto you. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you for your presence among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.